1: With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is heard tell.
2: Let's talk about how not. To talk about certain issues, we're going to go over to the UK, but this happens in America too. I suspect it happens in other countries. Um, the way you say things, ask anybody, ask your children, ask your significant other. How you say things matters almost as much as what you're saying. And in the cultural and political realm, it usually matters more because people want to hear things a certain way, they don't want to be talked to certain other ways. Uh, this is from Sky News. Um, A government minister has suggested that people struggling with the cost of living could take on more hours or move to a better paid job. Rachel McLean, the safeguarding minister, safeguarding minister. Just stew on that for a second. Told Sky News's Kay Burley that those were some of the ways households could, quote, protect themselves as prices soar. Now, the UK is having the same inflation problems we are. And we're going to give you an example of how not to talk about it if you're a sitting office holder, politician, commentator, or just want to be a decent human being. Miss McLean said that every minister was looking at the issue as consumers face short term pressures such as high energy and food bills and added there was more help coming. So far, so good. And then it all went so terribly, terribly wrong. She added, quote, over the long term, we need to have a plan to grow the economy and make sure that people are able to protect themselves better, whether that's by taking on more hours or moving to a better paid job. And these are long term actions, but that's what we're focused on as a government. Oh, boy. No, no, folks can't just move to a better paying job. No, they can't just take on more hours. How out of touch and tone deaf can you get, whether you're in the U.K., the U.S., or the United States of hippopotamus? That's never going to go off right. It's never going to come across right. It's going to sound condescending, out of touch, because it's condescending and out of touch. If people could just snap their fingers, mount their magical unicorn, and ride over to the better-paying jobs, they would, but that's not how this economy is currently working. Yes, there's a labor shortage and people are having some options, which means they're leaving poor job environments or lesser paying jobs because they can get other ones because of the competitive environment. But even at that, that's not how you say that. You don't tell the plebs to just go get better paying jobs. And you sure as hell don't take people who are already working hard, who are already at their limit who just went through two years of COVID, who are in an uncertain environment, who are in an election year where they're getting bombarded on all sides about what they should think, feel, and want to do when they get to the ballot box to just go work more hours. The people that work more hours and work on an hourly wage already know exactly how many hours they work. They know how many hours they need to work, and they know how many hours they want to work. And many of them can't get the hours that they want. Or they have too many and it fries them out and they're not able to work effectively. This is just tone-deaf idiocy from somebody who ought to know better. And whether it's in the UK or the US, we can point to other examples of this. This is very close to let them eat cake. We hear over and over again, well, they just need to work harder. Well, they just need to find a job. Well, they just need to put in more hours. Well, maybe they could find a better job. You can't snap your fingers and do things like that. You have to meet people where they are. Are they in an environment or in a place? In a piece I have coming out shortly where I did some research into the economics of that area, the average drive time for people who were working was over 31 minutes. That factors into things. Is it worth them to drive 31 minutes for a minimum wage job? How much of a job do they have to get to make that drive not only feasible financially, but worth their while? There's a lot of factors that go into things like the job shortage, like the financial crisis we're about to go through. Inflation is a tax on everybody, but it's especially a tax on the poorest among us because their dollar stretches the least. And now it's got to go even further. And then you start putting certain supply chain issues on top of it and you have a recipe for disaster. And for a poll or a commentator or, frankly, anybody else to open up their line of inquiry and their analysis of the situation with just go get a better paying job or just work more hours is always going to make them look stupid, out of touch and heartless. And it kind of is. You can't stop for a minute and understand that people who are working in an environment where we're constantly talking about labor shortages and the eponymous, nobody wants to work. The ones that are already working are getting pushed to their limit because of those labor shortages. Good employees keep getting it handed to them and handed to them and handed to them because they're the only ones there. And eventually they reach their breaking point, too. Don't tell those people to work more hours. And there's only so much upward mobility certain classes of workers have. Yes, you can try to get them more education. You can try to get them more training. You can do some things policy-wise to open up an environment where they might have more options, but not all of them do. I am so sick and tired of unicorn rhetoric like this, the condescending rhetoric. It goes past parties and it goes past ideologies. Don't tell people to just go fix their lives, which is eventually what you're saying. Like it's all their fault. It's not all their fault. These things are nuanced. The job market is complicated. The economy is complicated. And it's getting more complicated and less friendly to the workers. So before you open your pie hole, politicians, commentators, writers, talking heads on TV, remember a couple things. If you're talking and or writing words for a living, You are among the very most privileged people in our society, and before you start telling other people to just work harder, remember how good you have it and how privileged you have it, and that them working harder or them trying to get better is going to take a whole lot more than just your wishful thinking. Be mindful, be empathetic, be sympathetic, and above all, try to be a better human being. Because telling people to just do better when they can't is one of the cruelest things you can possibly do. More Hurt Tell, right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hurt Tell. He is back. Dennis Sanders, our good friend uh, up in the Twin City area. He is a writer. He's a commentator. He's also a local pastor, man that wears many, many, many hats and does them all very well. He also has his own uh, platform that we're going to talk about in a minute to do some writing. And he also joins us at Ordinary-Times.com. Dennis, how are you, my friend?
0: I am doing well. Doing very
2: well. Always thrilled to talk to you, especially on this, because uh, we've been kind of kicking around wanting to talk about this for a while but uh, we were covering labor a while back. You did a little bit of pushback of how we covered labor, but let's get the bona fides first because you're from one of the great labor areas of the world, Flint, Michigan.
0: Yes, I was born and raised in in Flint. Uh, Both my parents were um, auto workers. So that meant that they were both members of the United Auto Workers, Um, different locals, but both members,
2: union members. So you've got that strong union background. You grew up in that area. But you've also seen the after effects where, you know, those great union jobs, those great union benefits didn't really play out for everybody too awful well, did it in the long run?
0: No. And that's that's kind of the hard thing is um, growing up, as I did in the 70s and 80s, Flint had a that was the thing that was going on in in the city. In the Flint area alone, there were about 80,000 people that worked for General Motors. And for those who don't know, General Motors actually had its start in Flint. Today, it is probably around 8,000. So that's, as you can tell, it's a huge amount of of jobs that were lost that really, really changed the city in ways that are, I think, for a lot of people, unimaginable.
2: Yeah, and this is a story, um, you're talking about Flint. Uh, You can talk about Youngstown, Ohio, where I have family that just decimated Black Monday, one of the the (laughs) real labor stories in the history of the U.S. Pittsburgh, anywhere in the Rust Belt. Um, What you tell me, because you grew up with that, it's part of your DNA, that blue collar union labor, something that was a lot of pride in that. People said, I'm a union guy, and they meant it, and it meant something. Try to explain that to somebody of a later generation that, that just thinks of Detroit as, you know the Detroit area and the Flint area and the economic uh, recessions that happened as that faded away, try to take people back to that time growing up in that time when that was your whole identity almost, wasn't it?
0: It pretty much was. And it was a kind of an age of people. It was sort of in some ways, a family. Um, Lots of things that GM sponsored that were made up part of the community and I think people had pride. This was something that you could go into without going to college and make actually a, a fairly good um, salary that you could support a family on. And so I think the cost of the kind of the, how people lived and everything was, was pretty good. Obviously, we weren't making as much as doctors or things to that extent. But I think for um, people working in manufacturing, it was was, um, fairly good pay. It allowed people to do things they probably wouldn't have been able to do. And I think especially for African-Americans who, um, kind of like my dad, came up from the South to places like Michigan for more opportunity, it it did get them that. It got them more greater opportunity, greater economic benefits that they um, had, they would have never had had they just stayed in the South,
2: yeah, talking to our friend Dennis Sanders, okay, so the next step of that journey, though, of course, is the unions <laughs> diminish. We know unions in union labor specifically in the United States of America is at its lowest form of basically recorded since we started tracking it. Um, we know the industrials have gone down. You just mentioned it. Do we overblow how benevolent companies used to be? Was it union power that balanced it out? There seems to be a lot of myth-making and legends involved in these sorts of things. Try to cut through some of that for us. What what was it that changed so bad? It wasn't. It can't all be one and all the other. How do you kind of foresee it looking back on it now, and especially with the way you've been writing about it?
0: I think it's a little bit of both. I think there were companies and people who believed that if you wanted to have um, people buying your products, you had to pay them well. Um, they believed in trying to help their local communities. Um, I think uh, one of the things that I did recently, a podcast on, um, someone by the name of Jay Irwin Miller, he was the um, CEO of Cummings Engine in um, Indiana. And there was actually an interesting article in The Atlantic kind of about his... the things that he did to help benefit that local community um you know from helping you know bringing kind of world-renowned architects to build public buildings to all of that but it was also unions as well that um it's kind of that unions were pushing for for better wages um for safer working conditions um just things to that extent that they were pushing for whether, and that sometimes meant going on strike um, to do that. Uh, one of the things that was um, really a part of Flint lore and part of labor lore is the 1936-37 sit down strike um, in Flint uh, where several of the factories, they basically literally stopped um, and sat down. And this was simply for that, at that time for getting labor recognition the company general motors didn't want to recognize the union and this was a way for them to kind of make that possible and i think once that happened you know again it brought forth things like better benefits healthcare retirement things that in a lot of cases we take for granted was done really because of labor but it's not all all labor and it's not all Benevolent companies. It's both. And I think in some ways we've lost both of those things in our modern culture.
2: See, I know that, you know, coming from West Virginia, if there was ever a group of people that ever needed a union, it was coal miners. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, they owned you. They owned you with the script. You lived in a company house. They paid you with company script. It, it was terrible what was going on with the coal miners. You could do it with any other industry as well. But at the same time, the unions, kind of warped and developed they were not always the benevolent organizations they should have been either were they
0: no i I think that's also important to know too unions sometimes also had a racist history um they wouldn't necessarily include african americans um in in their unions that that changed over time but that wasn't always the case and i think even in modern day they've been slow to adapt to kind of the changing nature of um, the market. Um, as we've become a more globalized society, you know, we have to find ways of how do we continue to support things like trade, not necessarily to the extent that it's hurting people, but, but I think that there are benefits to trade. And so how do you do that and also support workers? Um, and I think sometimes unions were slow in getting to that, Um, They were also sometimes slow in dealing with competition, um, especially with United Auto Workers in the 70s, as we started to see the rise of of Japan, um, especially in the car market. I think both General Motors and the unions were not quick in trying to figure out how to compete against um, these new these companies that were now kind of making their way into the American marketplace So, you know, there are always drawbacks to unions. And I think I always want to say that, you know, unions aren't perfect. um, And some of those problems do need to be uh, lifted up. But I also think even as imperfect as they are, they do have a purpose in our society.
2: Yeah. And one of the things, because people knock me and think I'm anti-union, I'm actually not anti-union. I don't think unions are a one-size-fits-all solution. I don't think they're this panacea where everything a union does is perfect because we know better with the record of that. I look to, This is one of the few things I think Europe actually does a better job than we do. Unions mm-hmm. are not as adversarial. They're not as political. Uh, they work more in partnership. They're more symbiotic. How did it become so adversarial between unions and the companies? And again, it can't all be just one or the other, despite the way we're told it is that it's just these evil, wicked companies. Look, companies got to make money, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did this become so adversarial? And to the detriment of the unions, because we see the union membership, it's, it's the lowest it's ever been.
0: That's a good, kind of good question. I don't have a great answer to that, except that I think sometimes just in American society, we tend to be more adversarial. Um, as a, in our nature, um, as opposed to kind of in in Europe. I think sometimes some, some of the different um, ways that our different societies came out of, out of that, you know, my guess is, especially in Europe, um, well, in the United States, we have not really had a history of strong uh, socialist parties for for one um, thing, whereas there has been a strong case of that. So, Part of adversarial relationship probably was shown more in the voting booth than it was in actually the workplace. In um, as it is here, it's not as much shown in the work on the voting booth. So it showed itself in the workplace. Um, so I think that's kind of where the difference is. Um, at least it, it kind of like a guess from what I can observe. Um, but I think that that's something that probably needs to change. I, I think that the adversarial approach doesn't. That might have worked in the 1930s and 40s um, when this was a new thing and, part, and companies weren't as amenable. But I think that we're in a different age now. And so I think that um, unions have to change with that and um, maybe look at what Europe is doing or to think about. I, I know that I believe it's um, Orrin Cass who works with um, American Compass, which is a conservative a think tank that um, tends to be more pro labor, but thinks that we should have something that maybe is instead of working with one company, that it's uh, the union is more based on a uh, different industries um, that makes it a little bit less um, confrontational, but more kind of working together. Um, so I think that there there is. Definitely room and necessity for unions to change with the times just because they exist doesn't mean that the way that they struct- are structured now is the way that they should always be structured.
2: Yeah, the old, uh, they call it the, the working guild or the trade guild model. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. We're talking to our friend Dennis Sanders. We're going to continue with him. After the break, uh, we're going to continue to talk about labor, union and otherwise. And also, he's got a great example of how labor and things change with Kmart and Sears a lot and the downfall of it, except in one place where it's still thriving. We'll talk about that when we come back. Our friend Dennis Saunders on her tell right after this. Uh, Welcome back to Hurtel. We're having a good time talking to our buddy Dennis Sanders, but kind of a serious topic on labor and unions and things of this nature. Uh, One thing about unions that always strikes me, I think they're really misbegotten in where they're picking their battles right now. Uh, Organized labor, especially big labor, they are all in on going against the gig economy, the uh, secondary economy, whatever you want to call it. Why do you want to alienate? look, unions are down to something like 10% of the workforce. The gig economy is up to something like 30% of the workforce. Why are you picking a fight with the very people that you're arguing that you want to come into your unions and all you're really doing is alienate them? Cause they're like, look, leave us alone and let us work. This seems really misbegotten to me.
0: That I totally agree with. Um, I think one of the worst things that I've seen, especially the the law that came out in California, which I think wreaked havoc on a lot of gig workers you know, I think part of it comes from this belief that they think that um, the gig economy is just exploitative. And so they think that, well, wouldn't you really want to just work in an office or, or in an industry or whatever, um, like everyone else? Um, what I think the unions don't realize is that the nature of work has changed. Um, there are a lot of people that want to work on their own. They want to be contractors. They they want the, the flexibility that comes with all of that. And so coming in with a law that basically messes, messes all of this up isn't helpful. And it really just makes, uh, makes more enemies against unions than um, what is necessary. I mean, if unions want to be of help in this changed economy, then what they should be about is trying to create guilds or things to that extent that would help people who who do go into the gig economy instead of trying to basically mess up what they want to do, which is to work independently um, and to call their own hours.
2: Yeah. Here's where I depart from from some of our labor and labor friendly brethren. I think you absolutely have a right to start a union. I've been a supervisor Mm -hmm. in a company that was non-union. We had it hanging on the walls. I've had, I've, I facilitated the meetings for union reps to come into the non-union rep. We set them up in a break room. There's very specific rules how you have to handle those things. I've done all that. I've interacted with them. I know how those things work. My thing is you absolutely have a right to have a union, but that also means you should absolutely have a right to not have to go through a union to make your livelihood and that just seems to be the disconnect with some of the big labor folks and, and people that I know that are genuinely pro-worker, and they really believe that that's the best thing to do. If you're just changing one tyranny of a company to the tyranny of a union, and especially if you have a union that also has the backing of the federal government, which all too often is the case nowadays, that's, there's no way you can convince me that that's pro-worker because if the union has the backing of the government and you don't have a choice to be in the union or not, where's a worker go then?
0: Yeah, and I agree. One of the things I remember growing up that I can just remember, even as a kid, I didn't like this, is um, the whole concept of a, I think they would call it a closed shop, where basically, if you took a job, you are automatically part of the union. And there was a part of me that was bothered by that because you didn't have a choice of whether you wanted to be in the union or not. And I, I get what they're trying to get at with um, collective bargaining and all of that. But you've taken that person's choice of what they want to do out of their hands and just made them and has forced them to do something that they don't want to do. And I think, you know, that's kind of related to what's going on with the gig, gig workers is this belief that unions are good. So everyone should, should can benefit and realizing that there is also choice in this. People don't have to join a union. Um, unions are voluntary organizations. And even in spite of all the good that I think that they do do, and they do a lot, it's good, they're voluntary. And people shouldn't be forced to be part of one if they don't want to be part of one. And I think that's okay. That's part of, to me, that's part of what it is to be an American. It's a sense of choice of what we want to do.
2: It's part of what's killing the unions too, that the Uh, union was always supposed to be the voice of the worker. Well, everybody's got a voice now because they all have social media accounts. Like they can Google what their company's doing. They don't need their union rep to explain stock options to them. They all has, as technology just kind of made part of what the traditional union was obsolete.
0: They've made part of it. I don't think they've made all of it. Uh, um, And I think this is maybe where the initial pushback, came when, um, when I wrote to you a while back is the belief that because um, we have a more, um, I don't know, atomized society, um, social media, things that allow us to speak up, we tend to think that we have more power than we used to. And I think that there, there, in some cases that's true, but in other cases it's not. You may not have the power to say, "I would like to have better benefits or to deal with better healthcare." So there are some areas in some industries, not every industry, your one voice doesn't always um, carry when you're up against a management. And so that that that's where you would see a need for a union to kind of be that voice, where I think the. I think the, the the caveat is you have to want to be to have them be your voice. they can't just come in and be your voice um, that I think is wrong because that turns people off people don't want to have something being done for them, and in some cases they don't want necessarily a one size fits all thing um, so unions are still necessary but in this day and age, in the age of social media, in the age where of a gig worker, it's not gonna operate like it did in 1968. Um, we're not that economy. And that's, I think, part of the problem of why unions aren't doing as well is because they haven't necessarily always changed with the times.
2: Right, hotel. let's talk a little economics for a second. And this is CNBC has some data here is we talked about underlying effects in the economy that doesn't show up. One of them was the service workers. When schools are closed, they don't have child care. So people that pick up shifts and things like that, they don't have the ability to work. That messes with the data. It messes with the economy. Here's another stat that's showing up now that we're post-COVID, but still happening. Forty two percent is according to CNBC. We'll link to it in the show notes. Of Service workers have no input into their schedules. You think, well, nobody has an input in their schedules. We're not talking about whether they work or not. We're talking about when they work. Listen to these statistics. There were more than 15 million people working in retail services in May, according to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. When it comes to precarious schedules, though, workers in these fields experience an array of offenses. In the fall of 2021, for example, workers reported the following. This is a survey. 64% 64% of workers received less than two weeks notice of their forthcoming work schedule. 57% experienced shift time changes, including having one day or less notice of these changes. 36% were scheduled a closing shift when an opening shift the following day. And 42% of workers had no input at all into the timing of their work schedules. Now you might be rolling your eyes a little bit and going, well, what does that matter? Well, it matters a lot when you're talking about 15 million people, who can't schedule more than a day or two ahead of time, and you start thinking about things like childcare, you start thinking about things like school, you start thinking about their own contributions to the economy when they might do their own shopping or their own travel or their own whatever else. These are economic factors that we don't think of because they're more on the cultural side of like, oh, well, I don't know how often I'm working. But when you start looking at the labor shortage issues, the fact that the labor market is booming, but there's not enough workers, this is one of those non-specific factors that is worth talking about. People get tired of getting jerked around. And when they have an option to go to a different job, it's stuff like this on top of pay, on top of benefits that really affect whether or not they stay in a job. So the high stress, high mobility jobs where those schedules are bad, and especially with non-grade employers who are addicted to last-minute scheduling, this kind of stuff is why you're having trouble hiring people. It's one of those stats that doesn't show up, but it's starting to make a difference and something worth considering. More Hertel after this. Let's speak to that one-size-fits-all approach for a second because, to be fair, there are lots of companies that abuse the independent contractor labor to not pay benefits, to not do wages. That does get abused by companies. The thing here, though, is I don't know that a one-size-fits-all Well, we can just unionize the entire gig economy is going to work because the gig economy organically grew because it went into – lack of a better term, gaps of employment, people that wanted more freedom, people that wanted more independent thing, companies rose through those things, putting this old solution uh, across the board onto a new and burgeoning sector of the economy that's growing by leaps and bounds. And not everybody in the gig economy is miserable. A lot of people like that flexibility. You and me are in the gig economy. We're both freelance writers and, and media people. How did, I think this may be just one of those things where we're trying to do an old solution to a new problem, and you're just going to end up making a bigger mess. Am I wrong there?
1: No, you're absolutely correct. They're still using guidelines, to me, that seem largely reminiscent of the 1930s. Labor law of the 1930s and the scenarios that we have right now, very different. It's not the 1930s anymore. It's 2022. We have a lot of different metrics at play. We have worker kind of makeup that is very different. We don't, thankfully, see as much misclassification as possible. Certainly, some companies may engage in it, and if they are abusing those powers, They can have those situations rectified and and, uh, be targeted or not targeted, but um, essentially uh, reformed if they have been engaging in those abuses. But they want to take it a step further. And we saw this play out in California where they said this is to essentially address in in California's Assembly Bill 5 to rectify a huge, huge problem. It's only going to affect a small slither of the gig economy, the rideshare workers in their eyes, but it in fact, extended well beyond rideshare workers' who they claimed were missing out on benefits for healthcare and dental and other things that they were wholly misclassified under the eyes of California labor law. But it, it, of course, like every law with unintended consequences or intended consequences, I think in this case, they saw successful, highly skilled independent workers who don't really hinge their work output on the need for benefits or the need to unionize. They saw their workload shrink demonstrably I know on the offhand that a lot of people had to either give up gig work or freelance work altogether. They had to move to a different state. They had contracts canceled on them because people from out of state were very scared about what California's law would entail and said, well, we have to unfortunately cancel your contract because of the new labor law that California has into place. So a lot of people in California saw a huge loss of work. I think it's probably upwards of at least a million people. There's no uh, key figures yet, but I know at least... That figure, a lot of people in either a a permanent fashion or at least a partial fashion have seen their freelancer livelihood eroded in some capacity. And I wish they did have those numbers more, but I was told by people that at least a million people have seen some sort of uh, setback in terms of their employment status and, and kind of their success as freelancers. And we see these kind of copycat efforts in other blue states. In Virginia, and actually in your state of West Virginia, I know the governor signed into law last year, probably one of the strongest independent contractor worker laws in place to ensure that the IRS standard and the common law standard would be adhered to and that companies, especially labor unions, those who work, companies that work with labor unions or labor unions themselves would not abuse uh, claims of misclassification to displace independent workers from the workforce. And Virginia is starting to see that language too. Um, Like you had mentioned, I was in the process of testifying and they at last minute carried the bill over to next year. It's a good thing. So the Democrat controlled Senate wouldn't kill the bill, uh, which is ripe for potential. And they wanted the governor's office, I was told, wanted to rewrite it or lend some commentary a bit more to make it stronger. So there is an interest from this new administration in Virginia to pass it. But you see, obviously, California and a lot of states responding to California in the opposite direction to protect independent workers because I think red state governors largely recognize that this is a burgeoning workforce. Uh, There's largely no misclassification of very limited instances when it's an independent worker who voluntarily engages in a contract with companies. Probably like you, I voluntarily enter agreements with companies. It's mutually agreed to terms. I get to decide and agree to the payment. Uh, If I want benefits, I can set aside money myself. That's not really something I hinge my work out work output on um, because that's very minor. <laughs> if I wanted to do that, I would have stayed in a nine to five job. But essentially, I think people, especially big labor, misunderstands why people go into this and I think they're kind of ignoring where the trends are going economically speaking, especially in wake of the pandemic, we see a lot of people leaving nine to five jobs in what has been billed as the great Resignation or now the Great Reshuffle. And people have cited flexibility, more free arrangements. More freedom to choose who to work with, your work hours, things of that sort, and having more happiness and, and better well being, mental well being, things of that sort, more time with family. A lot of people have cited those factors as reasons for them leaving traditional workplaces for these more flexible work arrangements, or maybe even traditional jobs now allowing for remote and more flexible options. I've seen that some companies are doing that as well, recognizing that they risk losing workers to flexible work arrangements. If they don't adopt these more flexible type of scenarios to their workers. So I would say the regulators are going against the trends. They're failing to see that the regulatory framework of the 1930s does not apply to the regulatory framework of today. And I think you see a lot of workers telling regulators, do not regulate us out of existence. Do not reclassify us, because if you do, it'll have a lot of very bad consequences for people, for the GDP, for people's well-being, And for just kind of this new and kind of last, I would say, iteration of entrepreneurship that you see pure unadulterated entrepreneurship that can take someone from being self-employed to running a small brick and mortar shop to maybe one day running a big business
2: talking to gabriella hoffman when we come back we're going to dig into that labor just a little bit there's an appointee that's very important trying to get into the labor department that we're going to discuss Uh, also talk about something not labor related Uh, she's got a little bit of conservation work she's been doing talk about that to finish up we'll be back with gabrielle hoffman of young voices right after this on Hard talk Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell. We're continuing our conversation with Gabrielle Hoffman. All right, here's, here's something that we get into with social media a lot. Um, people want to equate, especially people that don't want to argue in good faith, that, well, if you're against unions, you're against labor and you're against workers. I'm not against union. You'd mention it. I'm from West Virginia. Look, if anybody ever needed a union, it was the coal miners. And talk about the 30s, even before that, Blair Mountain back in the teens and 20s. Um, it's not that I'm against the unions. I'm against the current itineration of big labor unions in America as they exist now, where they have the kind of antiquated model like you talked about, and it becomes a power structure. And now that you have a power structure like that, that is combining with the force of the federal government to give them what they want. My fear is these labor unions, and I think we have some data to back this up. When you talk about something like the gig economy, you're going to be trading one poor taskmaster for a new taskmaster that's even got less ability to fight against it.
1: Yeah, With the discussion about enhancing big labor. So you've probably heard about the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which is kind of the federal companion to California's AB5. And this would be a complete restructuring of employment law, labor law as we know it. And I think a lot of us argue that it would take us back to the 1930s. And again, it doesn't match kind of the standards of where labor law and where labor trends are going. And the PRO Act, in addition to kind of reclassifying or, in their words, misclassifying, addressing misclassification concerns of workers, they would essentially repeal right to work. So states wouldn't be able to operate. I think there are 27 states right now in the country, West Virginia and Virginia being one of them that uh, allow their workers to not have to join a union as a prerequisite for employment. So they would essentially make it so you repeal right to work and to have your employment hinge on union membership. Additionally, uh, you would give greater oversight to labor unions under the product if it were to pass that would essentially make it so union bosses would essentially dictate the affairs of employer-employee relations. So an employer will essentially have to give worker information, to these union bosses who are now intermediaries in businesses if this hypothetical situation were to play out. And we don't know exactly what information they would obtain. Would they obtain a worker's social security number, their birth date, home address, bank account statements? Essentially, how much power are we giving them and how much private information are they gonna be able to have at their disposal? So a lot of critics of the PRO Act have said, there's a lot of privacy concerns, especially giving labor unions more emboldened power to carry out these actions. So there's privacy concerns, there's obviously free association concerns. um, And essentially the unions would gain or seek to gain or potentially even become like $3 billion richer. And they're a pretty influential, financially wealthy, uh, welfare organization. That's how they're classified, I guess, in the nonprofit space. And they would essentially become more wealthier all the while disempowering a workforce that's about three times as larger as them. So this would give unions unchecked power. You wouldn't be able to contest a case against them. You wouldn't be able to withdraw yourself from a union. They would make it extremely hard for you to not have your work be conditional on union membership. So everything would be at the behest of unions and you wouldn't be able to prove otherwise or you wouldn't be able to identify otherwise. Even if you're self-employed, they want everyone, I hate to say it, to return back to a traditional job, a nine-to-five job, even though people are willingly And voluntarily leaving nine to five jobs, you can't force people back into those arrangements. And we saw the pandemic actually give license to the fact that you can go away from a traditional job and you don't need a union. And you probably have seen the headlines where even though there was often discussions about different companies allowing their workers to organize or different worker organization efforts, efforts to collectively bargain in Starbucks and other different conglomerates, We saw a shrinking of the union workforce in this country over a year. It went from 10.8% of the workforce to 10.3%, despite the big media push, despite big labor supposedly being more emboldened, despite uh, a lot of the puff pieces and the positive stories about this is people have a positive view of unions, but for some reason, the, the union workforce is shrinking and there's a disconnect between the argument because how could Such glowing, raving reviews of these entities, which if you look at the polling, they're actually more mixed. And if you look at kind of more bipartisan polling, not polls conducted by labor unions, it's actually more mixed or kind of in the negative for labor unions. People don't want to change what currently already exists, including Democrats who may be supportive of big labor aims. And you see a lot of independents and, of course, Republicans say that unions shouldn't be given more power. And this is evidenced through a Forbes tape poll that was released last June about the PRO Act. And you actually saw pretty bipartisan widespread support about opposing different tenants, the right to work revoking component, the ABC test implementation and giving unions more access to private information. And so that carries over to uh, the nominee who we were kind of alluding to earlier, David Weil, who wants to return back to his wage and hour division administrator role. And he would like to implement aspects of the PRO Act, especially this ABC test when it comes to worker classification efforts. He also has a bone to pick with the freelance economy in the greater scheme of things. He calls this the fissured workplace. He sees it in a very negative light. So he's not a friend, and I don't think he'd be a fair arbiter of labor law with respect to this. I think he would create law and regulation that would make it harder for people to independently work and also for franchises and franchisees to operate as well. He has had a bone to pick with franchisees as well, um, and he also had... Uh, kind of the gumption to extend the overtime pay rule under the Obama administration, and the courts put him in check. So he wants to kind of play around with those three things as well. So a lot of people in the independent workforce, whether they're independent contractors or they're franchisees or franchise business owners, they'll have to be very concerned about his potential return to the Department of Labor again if he were to be confirmed. But right now, I haven't seen any indication that his confirmation will move through. To a full Senate vote yet, I think Senator Joe Manchin has expressed concerns with him privately. And I'm not sure about the two Arizona senators and Mark Warner, but there has been some opposition to him on a bipartisan basis as well. But those are kind of the the two things that people should be aware about.
2: Yeah, but when it comes to him, we're talking to Gabrielle Hoffman. About labor issues. When it comes to him, even if he's not confirmed, this goes to what you're talking about about how power works when we're dealing with labor and how the government and big unions and the workforce and workers themselves all meet because most people probably have never heard of the wage and hour division of the Department of Labor, but it's these kind of bureaucratic administrative postings. They're appointed positions. so they have to go through a view. Theoretically, that's through our representatives, but let's not get into all that right at the moment. Uh, that That's a position that has immense power when you start talking about things like the gig economy, doesn't it? So just explain for a second, though, this is, this is really important that it sounds kind of like, oh, well, this is just a government posting. No, this really, really matters if you're trying to be an Uber driver or if you're trying to work for Amazon as a third-party carrier or pick whatever you want, freelance writing, whatever the case may be.
1: Yeah, if he were to return back to the agency, especially with his animus towards it, I think that presents a huge conflict of interest. You're supposed to be a neutral arbiter. If you're presiding over lawmaking or rulemaking in this capacity, you should have someone who's more fair to it, who hasn't written against the gig economy or called for its its its, its uh, quashing. In a sense, I like I said I think a lot of these regulators in the Biden administration and those in the agency side just are denying reality like I said they have a huge disconnect between the workforce and kind of special interests or kind of the the concerns that they're hearing they still kind of view labor law in the lens of the 1930s they think that there's bad workplaces things are dirty people, workers are dying and that there has to be a huge remedy a big sweeping remedy to these problems but they're taking maybe, Uh, some case studies. And certainly there are some concerns. I know people have heard about Amazon. I've I've seen about some of the worker conditions there. I can't really weigh in on it because I don't know exactly if it's true or not. But I know a lot of people, even some on the right, have said, well, Amazon kind of exploits their workers and does this. And then you hear other people say, well, maybe this is a mischaracterization. Um, But a lot of people have jumped onto kind of these bigger companies that have Uh, tapped into independent contractors because they want them to unionize. Although when workers at Amazon were presented the opportunity to unionize, especially in the Alabama plant, if I'm not misinterpreting that case, they actually overwhelmingly rejected efforts to unionize by like 70 something percent to 20, 30 some odd percent. So when workers are presented the opportunity to collectively bargain, they don't want to. And I think you even see some de-unionization efforts too. There was a chicken poultry plant in Delaware recently brought to a vote whether or not to continue to be unionized, and the workers ultimately decided to withdraw themselves from the union. So you don't hear those stories often, and certainly you can cherry-pick as to what stories resonate. You could say, well, this company is engaging in this egregious labor abuse, but what about the opposite, where labor unions are effectively tampering with business affairs and the workers who have the decision to unionize or not they don't want to unionize and they're not given the choice in some cases to reject unionization efforts if they're in a non-right-to-work state or they decide to repeal uh, unionization or collective bargaining agreements so it could be framed in any way obviously but i think they're ignoring the fact that workers don't want to be again regulated in a one-size-fits-all approach and i think people see because of the pandemic that maybe the traditional work framework including union jobs, are maybe not suitable for people going forward. And I think what people fail to understand is, yes, while we may have some, I have personal gripes with labor unions, I think they have exceeded their power. Uh, They're not really representative of all workers. In right-to-work states, they can exist. We see here in Virginia with powerful teachers unions, even though we're a right-to-work state, they're able to exercise muscle and prevent certain policies from going into place. It doesn't mean they can't exist. It just means that you have to allow for people to, to not want to unionize if they don't want to. And we want to have coexistence. I don't think they want to have coexistence with us. And that's probably a sinister look into the issue, but we can have coexistence. I don't think they're open to having coexistence with us because they view us as competition.
2: All the music on HerTel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.